good morning, Fellowship Fayetteville. Thanks for being here. Let's go ahead and stand up. We're going to sing this out. This, is a, this song is a reminder of why we gather. We gather to lift up the name of Jesus, and this song walks through his life and what he did for us and how our debt has been paid in Jesus. And so let's sing this together. Man of Sorrows. Every voice. Here we go. this morning, I want to remind us that our debt that we owe because of sin has been paid in full completely by the blood of Jesus, that there isn't shame. If you're in Christ this morning, it means you, when, when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin. He sees Jesus. He sees every time Jesus was tempted and chose not to sin, we get credit for that if we're in Christ this morning. And so this morning, as we sing this, now our debt has been paid, completely been paid in full. I'm going to ask you to sing it with a different posture than we normally sing it. The first time we sing it, I'm going to ask you just to hold your hands out and receive this truth as we sing it. Just receive the fact that our debt has been paid. And then the next times we're going to sing it, we're going to declare it. So either, either fist up in the air or hands in the air, we're going to declare that this is true. We're going to receive this truth first, and then we're going to declare it. This is good for us this morning. We need this. Let's sing it. Let's think about it. Think about the words that we sing. Every voice. Now my debt. And now my debt is paid. It is paid in full by the precious blood that my Jesus spilled. Now the curse of sin has no hold on me. The sun sets free, oh, it's free indeed. Now my debt is paid, it is paid in full by the precious blood that my Jesus spilled. Now the curse of sin has no
I want to teach you something this morning about a song that we're actually about to sing. It's a song that we sing um, often in here, and there's a line in the song that I want to make sure that we know um, what we're singing whenever we whenever we sing it. I'm going to start out by reading Romans uh, chapter 5, and this is Paul to the Roman church, and a lot of times whenever we hear the word church, we think of what church uh, in our country looks like with lights and microphones, and uh, it is very likely, about 100%, that that's not what the Roman church looked like. It was actually probably in a, in a little home with very few people, and, and Paul writes this, this letter to them, and keep in mind, these are people who have seen their friends uh, be killed for, for claiming to follow Christ. In the Colosseum, they've seen them as sport and game be killed for following Christ. And Paul writes them to say, keep going. Hold fast to this truth. It's worth it. And in chapter five, he says this. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, meaning Adam's, much more have the grace of God in the free gift by the grace of that that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And so Paul is reminding them, he's kind of, he's kind of bringing them in on, on the larger narrative of the Bible to go, hey, I just, told, I just told you earlier in chapter five that you have peace with God. Well, there's no need for reconciliation where there wasn't sin to begin with. And so he teaches them where sin came from. And sin came from Adam. Adam was tempted. When Adam was put on earth, he was told to be a blessing to others, to, to um, give blessing out. And rather, he sinned. He turned and he thought about himself. He was selfish. Fifth greed. And so sin came from Adam and he was tempted. He fell. And then he says, but praise be to Jesus. Jesus. The Hebrews writer said he was tempted in every single way and was without sin. So you have Adam over here who was tempted in sin and brought sin to the world. And you have Jesus who was tempted in every way and didn't sin. And he gives us reconciliation and peace with our Lord God. And so there's a line in this next song we're going to sing in the line. What it says is, see the true and better Adam come to save the hellbound man. What we're talking about there is see Jesus. For though he was tempted in every way, he didn't sin. So this morning as we sing it, I want you to think about that. I want you to think about the words of this next song and what they mean for us. And so sing it out with us.
stand together and let's sing this. Come behold. Yeah. 
of your gospel. Lead us to freedom from our sinful nature. May our words be loving when tempted to be passive. And may our testimony be honest when tempted to hide. Father, we want to be known for loving you. Let faith and love be defining characteristics of our life and the life of this church. Make the gospel and your glory our life's primary motivation. And so together, let's read this and ask him this. Father, I am your vessel. I am your servant. I am your handiwork. I am your child. Unveil my eyes to see my destructive eyes. You alone I will serve. Grant me a deep and true love for those you have placed in my life. May that love guide me towards an urgency in prayers of intercessions for their souls. May my obedience always reflect the gratitude I feel in being relentlessly pursued by you. Amen. Good morning. How are we? Okay, Ray, they're all yours. Um, this is Ray. Uh, he's a Renaissance man around here. He does a lot of stuff uh, from counseling and care to greeting, hospitality. He kind of makes a lot of things run around here. And he's going to update us on just ways that we're serving our city. So, Ray? Yeah, Garland, thanks. You know, I'm, I find myself very thankful that our people, God's people, have been faithful in giving throughout a pandemic. And you haven't just been faithful in giving financially. You've been faithful in giving your time and your talent as well. Now more than ever, the church is alive and well. We're seeing that in very tangible ways. For instance, I recently heard about a community group who found a creative way to serve a longtime Fellowship Fayetteville partner called South Church. And if you don't know, South Church, is <clears throat> their mission is to share the gospel and a meal with the homeless in Fayetteville every Sunday. And so not being able to prepare a meal and serve it in a normal fashion, this community group got together and they separated the ingredients, if you will, for a sack lunch. And each member of the community group bought chips and fruit and bottled water and they put sandwiches together. And the leader then went around and collected all those parts and pieces, put them in a sack, 
and took it down to South Church so that those people that were in attendance of South Church that day could see the love of Jesus even through a sandwich. And so we try to keep opportunities like this in front of you through our website. If you go to our website and look on the serve page, you'll find all kinds of opportunities. And there are opportunities like this, this one, Family Network NWA Diaper Drive. And Family Network NWA, their mission is to educate and equip families for greater success. And they're right here in our community. And they have identified several many families who are just are unable to consistently buy diapers. Garland, are diapers expensive? A little bit. A little bit, yes. And so they are unable to do that. And they want to provide diapers for these people. And so in a very tangible way, this week while you're out shopping and getting your groceries, you can grab a package of diapers and you can give that to these people. Or you can go online to this website and you can donate enough money for a package of diapers so that, again, the people of Northwest Arkansas continue to see that we love them and that Jesus loves them. Now, I have a granddaughter on the way. It's our first, and I don't know about you, but I would do a lot of things to make sure that she has everything that she needs, including diapers. So thank you for continuing to serve. Please go on our website, make yourself, uh, educate yourself as to all the ways that you can serve and be a part of uh, this church in this community. Thanks, Garland. Thanks, Give Ray a hand. He does a lot around here. Goes unseen. Um, so I was scheduled to teach next week, um, and uh, if you can put my, my slides up there, because I'm going to have to introduce you all. Uh, I was scheduled to teach next week, and I am, but uh, Tad Moore, who's our FSM director, was going to teach this morning, but on Friday morning at 10.30, this happened. And so Tad, oh, have you got to go there? Tad had their baby. Or I should say Christian had their baby. Tad was there uh, in the room. But uh, uh, they, they had their baby on Friday morning at 1030. And so we've welcomed Holden into the room. And so if you know Tad and you got his number on your phone, you can text him right now. He said he was going to try to watch this. So he's, they're there at the hospital right now. And that means I'm the pinch hitter today. And so you got to suffer through me for two weeks in a row. So get excited about that. And I thought, uh, just because this would be fun for me and nobody else, uh, especially the people I'm about to embarrass, uh, if you think about, like, back to your high school days, and some of you are like, please don't make me think about that. If you think back to uh, your high school days and then that high school yearbook time of the year, there, was the, there were these particular awards, and I'm not exactly sure how these awards were given out. It seemed a little bit political back in the, t- back in the day. There were awards for things like most likely to succeed and most likely to be president and most likely, you know, cutest couple or couple most likely to get married. And if you think about that, those awards are, are some kind of, they're, they're kind of cultivated over the course of years of your high school time. In fact, a lot of those awards are really just reputation being rewarded or not rewarded. So what I thought I'd do is we would take a journey back in time and look at some of the people that we know and some of their high school and maybe give them some awards. So we'll start with our fearless leader here. That's Clark, by the way. And I was just looking at all of these different uh, high school pictures. Thanks to all the spouses, by the way, who helped me uh, Friday morning. Uh, if you look at, if you know Clark, and if you see here, it's actually a- appropriate he's in the woods because I would give Clark the award for most likely to just go off the grid and disappear for like two decades and you never see him again. If you know Clark, he always seems like at any moment he might just wander off into the woods and we don't see him for like a week or two. And he's like, yeah, I was just in, I was in, I was in like uh, Denver and outside in the woods just, ha- just hiking and camping, we didn't even see you. Uh, here's a, a, another one. This would be, I think it's pretty obvious, and I would give Finley the award for most likely to literally never change at all. I mean, look at him. The man hasn't aged at all. And he, of course, he was valedictorian. Uh, this one I think is pretty obvious. Uh, this is Michael, and uh, I would give Michael the award for most likely to be a pharmacist, because look at him. 
That dude's going to be a pharmacist. And if you don't know Michael very well, I think it's interesting about Michael because also in the yearbook, he's, this is Michael, the future pharmacist, then Michael in the band, but Michael also might get the award for most likely to drive a NASCAR. If you know Michael, then you know he's this conundrum of a person. He lo- he, he's a pharmacist, and he loves the band, but he also loves combustible engines. And so there's something about Michael that's just this interesting dude. Now, this one I love. A lot of you don't know Kyle McCarthy. He makes things look good around here. He's on our media resourcing team. I was actually in high school with Kyle McCarthy, and based on this picture, I would look at him and say, he is most likely to quietly and subtly take over the entire world and rule it like an evil genius. Uh, This one, I think, this is Dave. And I would say Dave is most likely to go into male modeling, especially from this picture. So if you look at Dave, looking pretty good there. And then there's this dude. And I would say, I think it's obvious, most likely to play in the league. Like most likely to be in the NBA. And by the way, Dave, are you in here? Did you go back, did you go somewhere else? All right, Dave, just so you know, this guy could never guard this guy. Not then, not now. I just want you to know, next time we go play, that's the reality. And so when we think about what's going on with those awards back in your yearbook days, it's it's built on years of building your reputation, for better or worse, whether you like it or not, based on the people you hang out with, the people that you dated, the people, like your personality, what you did on the weekends, and it's cultivated and it's built over years. It forms somewhat of the reputation or the message of what you're about. And for a lot of us, that's the thing you were trying to get away from when you left high school. You're going, I want to get away from whatever that message, the story of who I am is. And with that as a backdrop, I know these are all silly examples. What I, what I want to do is we're going to look at this passage, and I'm just simply calling this the message of your life. Like, what does the story of your life tell? And in light of that, I just want to read the passage. We have three verses this morning that we're going to look at, and they're awesome. So if you don't mind, and if you're able, would you stand with me as we read God's Word? I know we've been standing, but let's read God's Word together in honor of it, in honor of it being read. Let's stand. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul writes this. He says, The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, and your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. This is God's word. You can grab a seat. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 as we continue our series. Uh, We're going to look at the message of your life, or maybe the message of our collective lives as a church here. And first, we've got to do a little bit of our background and get where we are in the story. If you missed last week, this will catch you up if you were here, a little bit of review. In the, in the first century, these followers of Jesus had been sent out, some of them, on these little missionary groups, and they would go around the Roman Empire heralding a message, a, a good news message, that Jesus is Israel's Messiah and the world's true Lord, that forgiveness and freedom is available in him. And on Paul's second of these little trips, Paul and a little group of followers of Jesus went out into the Roman world. This would be 50 51 AD, okay? So put yourself right there. That's, the, that's the, the background of what's going on. And you can see on this second missionary journey, they pushed into the new continent. The gospel breaks into Europe in this region called Macedonia, which is modern-day Greece. And you can see the northern part of our map here. You can see Philippi, and to the left, Thessalon- if your eyes are good, you can see Thessalonica a little bit to the left. And what happened is Paul and his team of of companions that are traveling around talking about Jesus, they showed up in Thessalonica, this important capital city of this region, and they saw incredible things. Like in the month that they were there, they see Jews and non-Jews, Greeks, coming to understand Jesus as the king. And what happens is, because of the success of their ministry, some people get angry in the city. And they, they incite a mob, I mean, a riot breaks out, and they begin looking for these Christians to hunt them down, especially Paul and his traveling team. And so Paul's run out of town. He has to sneak his way out of there. If you're like anybody, if, you're just, if you care about people at all, you can imagine Paul's concern, right? I mean, he's anxious. I mean, they ran me out of town. How are they doing back there in Thessalonica? 
And so Paul sent Timothy. He said, hey, Timothy, go check on him, and I'll meet you in Corinth. Tell me what's going on. Timothy arrives in Corinth, and I can imagine the urgency in Paul. What's the report? Have they been killed? Are they still loving Jesus? What's going on? How's it going at Thessalonica? And Timothy comes, comes to Corinth, and he says, they're doing great. Man, they, they're loving Jesus, and they're standing firm in their faith for Jesus. And Paul and Timothy, I imagine in the excitement of the moment, they sit down and begin to write a letter. And as that team crafts this letter, that letter is what you're reading, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8 to 10. That's the letter that we're reading. So that's our background of what's going on. And notice what Paul says. He says, the Lord's message, man, it rang out from you everywhere. I mean, everybody's talking about this small, the house church in Thessalonica is probably a couple dozen people tops. And man, it's gone out everywhere. Everybody's talking about you. I think this is really cool. You can see the size of the region we're talking about. Macedonia is the northern part of Greece. Achaia is this part down here at the bottom where Corinth is. So Macedonia and Achaia. And if you lay that across kind of the Midwest region where we find ourselves, that would be like Paul writing a letter in Dallas saying, man, people in Oklahoma City and Tulsa and Dallas and Fort Worth and Little Rock, they're all talking about what's going on with this little community group in Bentonville. It's awesome. Like, everybody, they can't, what's going on up there? It's amazing. And notice the content of the message. The message is rang out, and what is the content? Your faith, he says. It's the Greek word pistis, which means faith or faithfulness. Maybe the way we might, we might get both those nuances in is this. Your believing loyalty. Man, the news is spread everywhere about your believing loyalty, your faith in Jesus. Now, time out. Hard stop for us. In the modern American culture, we have fallen into this strange, uh, almost dual mindset way of living. And it sounds like this. We have divided the sacred or the religious time of our life from the secular or the rest of my life. If you think about it, we're even told to do this by the broader culture of America. Hey, you Christians can be Christian all you want, and you can do what you want in private, but don't bring that into the public square. Don't bring your, your faith in Jesus and what you believe to be. Don't bring that in here. We don't want that. And we've actually fallen victim a little bit to that. I think we fall right into that same way of thinking. We have our church time and we talk and act like church people at church or at community group or when we have our even think about the words we use our quiet time where we go get private by ourselves with our bible and then there's the rest of your life when you kind of do whatever you want and, if, and we live in this weird almost bipolar way of living where on the one hand we're christians and on the other hand we live like americans and we fall into this pattern of living two kinds of lives can I just, that is 100% foreign to the Bible. 100% foreign. That is not how these people are understanding this. There's no sacred secular divide in the first century. And it's going to be really important for us to see that as we look at what happens. Now he says, I've heard about your pistis, your faith. Now, what does that faith look like? What does it look like? It's not private mental assent that, to a set of truths about Jesus. Not at all. Look at the next verse. He tells us what it looks like. They tell, now we're going to see three verbs. We're going to underline these verbs. We're going to highlight these verbs. We're going to just look at these three verbs. That's our whole talk. You ready? The first verb is they tell how you turned. This is uh, the indicative verb, and it carries the weight of the sentence. It is in the aorist tense, which means it's like how we use past tense. It means it's completed. The action is done. How you turned. Now notice, it is a turning away from something to something. You know what we call that? The theological word for that is repentance. You can just write it across the verse 9. Repentance. You turn from something to something. And it's decisive. Turn from idols to serve the living God. Now I think for, for us, we're like, okay, cool, that. That sounds important. I'm glad that they did that. Whatever. I don't really get how, it, when Paul says, your faith's gone out everywhere, and what's that look like? You've turned. Who cares? Why is that so important? 
Now, I want you to see, for us, we may not get the, the big picture of this. I hope we do by the end of this morning. Uh, this is Thessalonica, modern Thessalonica in the bottom. This is the, a very important port in the this, this sea that's right in front of you. It made Thessalonica a very important port city. Lots of trade coming in and out. Lots of merchants going in and out. Lots of cargo going in and out. And that mountain across the way there, that is Mount Olympus. Now, remember from your world civilization class or your Greek class back in the day in college, that is where the pantheon of gods meets and hangs out. The Greek gods, they reside and they meet on Mount Olympus. So if you think about it, if you are coming into Thessalonica or growing up in Thessalonica, you're living in the shadow of the gods. In the ancient world, everything was animated by the power of a god. There were gods for everything. Just to give you a little small picture of what this might have looked like. And I, we have to get ourselves in the Thessalonican shoes or this passage won't make sense, okay? You turn from idols to serve the living God. Here's be a little smattering of some of these idols that would be in Thessalonica. When you walk down the street, you'd see them everywhere. Poseidon, he's the god of the sea. He's the one that protects your cargo when you send it. Your economic success is tied to whether Poseidon likes you or not. And so there were trade guilds that would get together, and all they would do was make offerings to Poseidon. Why? Because if he was angry with you, you'd lose your cargo, you'd lose your money, you might starve to death. It's really important that Poseidon like you. So walking down Thessalonica, you're going to see temples to Poseidon and offerings made to Poseidon. Aphrodite, the goddess of sex, pleasure, beauty, and love. And if you think about it, the, in the heart, the square of Thessalonica was a temple to Aphrodite. She was worshipped by having huge festival parties where you would bring animal sacrifices, you would consume the sacrifices, the wine would be flowing like crazy, and then the cult prostitutes, here they come. And that's how you would enjoy the revelry of that, and you would hope that she would bless you. In the city of Corinth, which is just right down the road, the temple to Aphrodite on the top of the hill had a thousand prostitutes that worked up there. And if you're walking down Thessalonican streets, you're going to be seeing this. Bacchus, the god of wine, the god of the party, the god of comfort, the good life. Athena, the god who brings wisdom, the goddess who brings wisdom and success and victory. And here's to make matters worse. By the time we get to when Paul is writing this, a new, a new demigod has come onto the scene. See, in the Roman world, they began to elevate the Caesar as god. The Caesar is the divine son of God who brings a thousand-year reign of peace. And in Thessalonica, there are temples dedicated to worshiping this human king. He's our savior. He's our rescuer. Now, just for a moment, put yourself in, a, in the shoes of somebody receiving this letter. You've turned from idols. You made a decisive break. Can you imagine how gutsy that would have been? to walk down the streets in Thessalonica and say, no, I've got a different God, a different king, a different Lord. No, I'm not going back there. You can imagine the pressure that would be put on you. Like what happens when you were a part of that trade guild that sent, tr that sent things in cargo out on the sea, and the next time you lost a ship, that trade guild's going, it's because you stopped sacrificing to Poseidon. You are costing us money. Can you imagine... Put yourself there, the pressure, the social pressure, the intensity of that. Eugene Peterson says this, the first step towards God is a step away from the lies, and what I might add to that, the lies of idolatry of the world. The, the first verb that we're seeing is they turned. Second verb is this, they turned to God from idols to serve. Now, this is a little bit of a soft translation, okay? The verb that we're getting here, it's the verb form of the noun doulos, which means slave. They turn from idols to be a slave to this different God. Now, I, just even using the word, especially what's, what's going on in our world right now, I think it makes us uncomfortable, right? Like, okay, man, I thought God was all about love and, and forgiveness and grace. This is, this is kind of intense, be a slave? I don't really like that concept. Now, just go, go here with me. 
The Bible will say unashamedly, and if you've not heard this before, then this is important. Whether you're in Christ in this room, follower of Jesus or not, especially if you're not, the Bible will tell us unashamedly that every single one of us will necessarily be enslaved to something. All of us are enslaved to something. The question is what? What are you enslaved to? Uh, Jesus will say in the Sermon on the Mount, see it, he says, man, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll love the one and hate the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and, love the, and, not the, and despise the other. He doesn't say, and there's a third option, don't be a slave. Yeah, I guess there's a third option, great. You will be enslaved to something. I love the example Jesus uses. It says you cannot serve, you can't be a slave to both God, and the NIV is doing some work for us here. He actually says, and mammon. Mammon is what Jesus sees as the dark power that leads to human greed to always want to have more. Let's, let's use Jesus' example because it's right here in front of us. What does it mean to be enslaved to mammon, to money? I think we see it all over the place, don't we? When you go, I've got to get that next promotion, or I've got to get that 401k to this certain number, or this stock better land, or I've got to get that client, or our business. When we, be, when we make money, when we give our attention and our loyalty and our devotion and our energy, and we put our hope in our bank account or our next promotion or our 401k, it necessarily enslaves us, does it not? We end up anxious every time the market goes up and down. And guess what? It's always going to go up and down. We become enslaved to what does my title say and what number comes with that. We become enslaved to how that compares with that other guy down the road or that other girl in the next office. We become enslaved to is it enough? Will it be enough? Jesus is saying you will be enslaved. The question is to what? Like you taking care of your body, like you caring and cherishing your body, that's a good thing. Living healthy. But when we elevate, give our attention, our devotion, our hopes into the way that we look or the number on that scale, you become enslaved to that number on the scale. You become enslaved to not just how you look, but how you look in comparison to. How you look in comparison to what's on Instagram, what's in magazines, what's in movies, or that person at the gym. You become enslaved. You'll take one, not two, not three, but eight pictures every time you take a picture. Then you'll filter it a bunch of times because you are hyper worried and anxious about the way that you look. You become enslaved to it. I mean, the one that scares me, I love my kids, but we can so quickly and so easily become enslaved to the success or the behavior or the whatever of our kids. We can begin to put all of our loyalty, all of our devotion, all of our hope, all of our dreams into they make this team or they got that grade or they behave this way on the weekends or they got that scholarship. And we become enslaved to the performance of 12-year-olds. I mean, do you see how insane that is? They're 12. We become enslaved. I think summarizing this, I think Tim Keller's helpful in Counterfeit Gods. He says, if we look to some created thing or person to give us the meaning, hope, and happiness that only God himself can give, it will eventually fail to deliver and break our hearts. If you're putting your hope and your loyalty and your devotion to anything besides the God, it's ultimately going to enslave you, trap you, and it won't deliver what it promises. But man, see this, especially if you're here and you're going, I don't know about this gospel thing, this Jesus thing, hear this. This is the invitation of Jesus. He says, if you find yourself kind of tired of that and stuck and sick of being enslaved and anxious and weary and burdened, he says, come to me. Come to me and I'll give you what? Rest. Verse 29, take my yoke. What is a yoke? It's slavery. It's an instrument of restriction. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. But you'll find rest because I'm gentle and lowly at heart. Jesus is the only master who says, become my slave and I will set you free. He's the only Lord that says, be subject to me and I elevate you. Come bow before me and I give you joy. I don't enslave you to harm you, but I enslave you to set you free. Now, the, the last verb is to wait. 
They tell how you turn to God from idols, to be a slave to the living and true God, and to wait. Have you ever waited for something? Or maybe some of you are engaged right now, you're just waiting on the day. Man, it's so exciting. Maybe somebody's pregnant in the room, you're just waiting on the day. Have you ever been just really urgently waiting? I, I remember uh, when I was eight years old, in 1993, there was an arcade game that was awesome. And I could play it at Mazio's, but uh, I couldn't play it at home. And they made a console version of it for Sega Genesis, and it is still a top three game of all time. That game is NBA Jam. Anybody with me on this game? Anybody had this game? All right, this is like, this is like nobody my age in here right now, because if you were, you'd love this game. NBA Jam is a top three game of all time. And uh, I remember when it came out, it came out in 1993. And uh, that was the year, for those of you that were around, that was the year that we had that really crazy, like, snow and ice storm that we were out for, like, a week and a half from school. If you were around here, remember this. We had this terrible blizzard. And I lived in Bentonville, and the only place that had this game was in the Northwest Arkansas Mall. And for some reason, my mom knew, I think she knew, that I had so much expectation for this game that even through the blizzard, we had to go to Fayetteville to get it because she knew I would throw a huge fit all weekend. As an eight-year-old, I mean, I was going to let her have it. And so what she did was we came home from school, she got us in her little Civic wagon, and then we drove from Bentonville down 540, 49 now, down 540, all the way to Fayetteville. And it took an hour and a half. There was sheets of ice. People were sliding everywhere, blizzard, con like blizzard conditions everywhere. By the way, it never snows here. Notice that? It never snows anymore. It used to snow at least once a year. Now it never snows here. So this blizzard is coming down on us, and it was because I had so much expectation. I was waiting so eagerly for this game. Remember this guy? When I was a junior in high school, I remember there was a girl that I had a crush on, and I thought if I could just be with her, then, man, my, my joy will be complete and she was awesome, and, and the problem was she had a boyfriend. Um, so I was just, you know, she was kind of playing the long game, but I was thinking if she would just break up with him, then she'd come get with this, like I'd be happy, and then she'd be happy, and I put so much expectation and so much hope into them just ending their relationship, and they actually didn't. I just waited. I was doing the wait out. It didn't work. Uh, it didn't work at all. Uh, maybe some of you, you have found yourself in this COVID season, and right now you're just waiting for the next vacation. You're like, I hope, I hope our trip to Florida or our hope our trip to the mountains doesn't get canceled. It's okay. Like, it's okay. But a lot of us are waiting with eager expectation, just get me out of here for a week. Now, can I just, just time out for you and me? Just look, just look at it real fast and imagine yourself there just for a moment. And put your mask back on because we're here. All right, we're here. But imagine you're just there for a day. I know for Sarah and I, we were eagerly awaiting school. If you got kids, we did two summers this year, two full summers. And I remember when school was, we were, it was when it was getting close to school, we were like, just get, just get, we need to get them out of here because we can't do this anymore. And when, they, when, we get, when school's back, we'll have some relief and some peace. It's interesting, is it not? What you wait for, what you eagerly wait for, reveals something about us. Interesting. It reveals what we're putting our hope in to rescue us. Maybe it's a relationship, or maybe it's getting married, or maybe it's finding the perfect someone, or maybe it's retirement, or whatever it may be for you. What we wait for reveals something about us. This word that Paul is using here, to wait, this is the only time it's used in the New Testament and he says, to get the sense of it, I would, I would translate it this way. It is active anticipation. It is eager urgency. What you put your eager urgency into reveals what you elevate as your rescuer. It reveals what you think is going to be the thing that will bring peace to you. If we can just get to retirement, if we can just get the kids out of the house, if we can just get back to school, if we get to the next vacation, if I can get that next paycheck, if I can get that next promotion, we think that's going to bring some kind of peace to our soul. What we wait for, what we live for in the now with urgency, what we put our hope in reveals our true king. Here's how I know that. Look at what he says. 
What the Thessalonians are waiting for is the Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. All of that language, except for the resurrection, all that language was used of the Caesars. And even after Nero, that'll even be used of Nero and the Caesars. All of this language is used of the emperor. We're waiting on the emperor to come save us. He's our rescue, Rome. Paul says, no, we got a different king. We wait for a different king. This is gritty. Don't you see? This is so gritty. It's no wonder that when Paul came into the city, the response of the people in the city was, man, they turned this whole world upside down. Man, they're defying Caesar. They're saying there's a different king. They're waiting for a different king. Their hope is in a different king. It turns the, it turns the world upside down. This message has rang out all throughout Greece. And John Stott, summarizing all of this, I think is right on the money. He says, something extraordinary is going on in Thessalonica. A new society is coming into being. It's got new values, new standards. It's characterized by faith, by love, by hope. It's totally different. When the gospel message hit Thessalonica, everything changed for that group. And the city went, no. What's up with them? So much so that down in Dallas and over in Oklahoma City, they were going, we've heard about what's going on up there. How could people live like this? Who is this king? So here's my question for you and for me. Does this describe Fellowship Fayetteville? Is this, is this us? Decisive break with the idols of culture to be enslaved to serve the living and true God. Is this us? Let's, get, let's make it a little more hard, a little more challenging. Is this, is this your community group? Maybe even more challenging. Is this, is this you? When people look at you, if we were to ask your kids, your spouse, your neighbors, your coworkers, man, do they look like they just go along with all the idols of America? Or, man, they made a decisive break. There's something different. What would they say about you? What would they say about me? We're talking about these idols of the culture. I know we've, I've gone to that a couple of times. I want you to see, we don't call them Poseidon and Aphrodite or Bacchus or Athene or Caesar. But are we worshiping these idols? The talons of these idols are in deep in the human culture. And yet we don't call them that, and we don't have temples dedicated to them. But man, they've got their arms around us. And have we made a break? Like, what would your coworkers say when you go to that city and they want to go out to that bar, that club, whatever? What would your friends say on Friday? I mean, is sex not an idol in our culture? You can't sell anything, make a TV show, make a movie without it. By the way, pornography industry, on fire during COVID. Crushing it. And I just want to give you a challenge. When you, when you go male and female in the room, when you go to that porn site, wherever that looks like for you, what you're doing is a personal sin, yes. And it's grievous, and it's between you and the Lord, I get that. But you're walking up the steps of a temple. And you're giving your allegiance, your devotion to an idol. You're handing it power over you. Man, that's, that changes how I think about the way that I live. I mean, comfort and pleasure, is this not what a lot of us are living for? I, I know it's an election year, so I'll be careful. But what you hope for what you put your eager expectation into reveals what your king is. And in right now, the idol of this party or that party or this candidate or that candidate, we put our hope in it. If this person will win, everything will be great. They'll bring the peace that we need. We elevate nation and politics. And my question is, does this describe us? Does this describe you? Now, here's my fear. My fear is you might be right now going, okay, I don't like what you're saying there, Garland, but I think I get it. 
and which what I'm supposed to do now is I'm going to try harder. I'm going to be a better Christian. I'm going to work harder at, at fighting against the idols and, and serving Jesus more. I can do it. I'm, I'll, I'll do it. Here's the problem with that. If that's what you hear, that will fail you. You will elevate your religious performance to idols. And it will lead you to either always feel ashamed because you're not living up or arrogance because you say, look at me. Why can't everybody do it like me? How do we do this? How in the world do we live like this? Look at the last line. We wait for Jesus. He's the one who rescues us. It's not about trying harder to be a better Christian. It's about seeing that Jesus has already accomplished everything that we need. And beholding it and going, oh my gosh, yes, look at what Jesus has done for me. It's amazing. He's rescued me from the snares and the trappings of those idols, the brokenness of that. And he set me free, Paul will say in Colossians. He rescued us from the dominion of darkness. And he brought us into a new family, a new kingdom. And through him we've got what? Redemption. It means to be bought out of the slave market and set free. And what does it look like? You're forgiven. How do we live like the Thessalonians? We see Jesus. We say, that's my king. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to pray, and we're just going to give you a minute or two just to process. What's the message of your life? What's the message of our life? What would people say? And then we want to turn our attention to him because he's the way that we get set free. He's the way we live this radically different life in our city and our day. Let me pray, and then we're going to take a minute or two just for you to, with your eyes closed and your head down, just to be thinking, and then we'll sing. Lord, this is heavy, I know. As I've processed it in my own life, I desperately, desperately want to see you, and I want my life to be about you, but those idols, they lure my heart away so often. But you're worth it, Jesus. We found something better. So may we right now come clean and be honest and then turn to you. And we ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen. Just take a minute or two. It's the quietness of your own heart. clean hands and give us pure hearts let us not lift our souls to another give us clean hands and give us pure hearts let us not 
together amazing grace time amazing grace just your voices amazing grace how sweet the sound that saved like me Our prayer this week is that we go from here with our eyes fixed only on Jesus, the author, the founder, and the perfecter of our faith. If you need prayer this morning, we'd love to pray with you in our prayer room to my left, to your right, through these doors, and right up here to our prayer room. And we'd love to pray with you or celebrate anything going on in your life. Fellowship Faber, we love you. We'll see you next week. Don't forget to reserve a seat for next week. God bless you.